This is not the media. This is hell. What she said. Utopia is a fantasy, a mirage, something we imagine, something we dream about, but it can never really exist. Utopia is our vision and version of what is perfect without question and above all doubt and any criticism. But what if somebody else's idea of utopia is not your idea of utopia, yet their idea is what becomes understood as utopia? And what if that utopia that you do not see as all that utopian is suddenly imposed upon you, forced on you, and any problem you have with this enforced utopia, well, that's your problem. It can't be the utopia's problem, after all. It's utopia. That doesn't sound all that utopian to me. In fact, it sounds pretty authoritarian, if not totalitarian. Maybe the idea of pursuing utopia or any so-called utopian ideas, concepts, or practices is misguided, and the goal of perfection can be a slippery slope toward fascism. After all, weren't all of the worst, most violent aspects of the last century, the 20th century, all due to attempts to achieve some sort of utopian society, whether it was in Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia, the mere pursuit of utopia could, in and of itself, be a recipe for societal disaster. All that said, we if we dismiss utopia out of fear of totalitarianism, what impact does that have on our political imagination, including our ability to imagine that there is an alternative and a better world is possible? More importantly, given the dystopian world we live in, how can we think, be, act, and live in a utopian way? We'll talk utopia, totalitarianism, political imagination, and everything in between in a few when we speak with philosopher Teppo Eskalinen, who edited the collection of essays, The Revival of Political Imagination, Utopia is Methodology. Teppo is lecturer in development studies at the University of Jyväskylä in Finland and has also worked as a lecturer in social and public policy. Teppo's research interests include political economy and global justice broadly understood, and he has also done research on radical democracy, classics of heterodox economics, and economic alternatives. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed, live stream, podcast, radio show host, Chuck Mertz. It's Tuesday, so producing must be Jess Lipka. Jess, how are you, sir? Yep. I'm doing well, Chuck. <laughs> you missed your microphone button. I did. That happened with Daphne the other day as well, too. Any plans for the holiday? Are you going to do anything for Thanksgiving at all? Um, yeah, um, my my family's in Rogers Park. I'll probably, I'll see them. Probably see them? Yeah. It's yeah. a long drive from from the south side. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> so, uh, and are you enjoying so far your first few days in your new place? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, we just, uh, me and my roommate just set up our boxing gym in our garage, and it's pretty cool. Awesome. You box? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, how much do you weigh right now? Um, I'm like 155. Oh, that's pretty good. That's a good weight to do. My <laughs> fighting weight is 168, and I'm not even, and I'm unfortunately getting really close to my fighting weight because uh, my doctor thinks that's way too late for me to be. Yeah. Jess, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is What are you trying really hard to not think about? What are you trying really hard to not think about? What are you trying really hard to not think about? I'm trying really hard to not think about my downstairs neighbor having coronavirus right now uh the person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins our new gray and black this is hell winter hat you can check out the new gray and black this is hell winter hat and all of our merchandise right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to complicit completely listener supported this is hell without you we got nothing so thanks for all your support you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio you can tweet it to us at this is hell radio you can email it to us at chuck at this is hell Dot com or alex at this is hell.com but we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's wednesday show when we are announcing this week's winner following jeff dorchin in the moment of truth this week jeff and his anesthesiologist give a stern warning don't forget we are not doing a show on thursday however we will be back with a patreon podcast on friday at 10 a.m jess will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest we did get some more listener feedback overnight at chuck at this is hell.com including this from meredith despite what i just read to you i'm going to read meredith's email because well, i'm going to kind of 
repeat the same information I just told you. I, uh, Meredith writes, I love your podcast and interviews. I'm going to donate to your show this week. Another question. How do I order a This Is Hell hat from one Westridge folk to another, Meredith? All you have to do, all anyone can has to do, go to thisishell.com, click on support, and you'll see a huge banner that says buy merch. Click on that, and you'll see all the stuff we have on offer, winter caps, trucker hats, uh, T-shirts, tote bags, enamel steel camping coffee mugs, tote bags, face masks, the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive containing dozens of interviews from the first 20 years of this current century, which makes a great stocking stuffer if you're into that kind of weird fetish. So, Meredith, go to thisishell.com and click on support to find all of our swag. And for those of you who are not in the know, our studio and office is above a bar that is in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood where Meredith lives here on the far north side, the neighborhood where I also reside. And it is always cool to find out there are actual listeners in the neighborhood. I swear we have more people tuning in from Dakar, Senegal, than we do Chicago, which kind of makes sense. Kind of. Daniel sent a guest suggestion to Chuck at ThisIsHell.com, writing, I ran into this article about delivery workers in China and thought it could be a cool interview subject. It's written by a collective whose members I think are anonymous, so I'm not sure whom you would talk to. Stay beautiful, Daniel. The link Daniel sends is to an article at shuangcn.org. And I've come across this website before, C-H-U-A-N-G-C-N, C-H-U-A-N-G-C-N.org. And is headlined, Delivery Workers Trapped in the System. The article starts by reporting in China the delivery worker sector had already become a focal point of unrest several years ago, as both capital and labor flowed from the declining factory sector into services in general, and the minimally regulated new e-commerce platforms in particular. While lockdowns in the early part of this year limited in-person organizing the past few months have seen a revival of labor actions combined with a flurry of media exposés about the industry, express parcel couriers uh, seized upon the lead up to the November 11th shopping holiday, Singles Day, with protests, slowdowns, and mass resignations reported in multiple cities over the past few weeks. And two months ago, one of China's most widely read magazines, Ren Wu, published a long-form inquiry into the horrors of food delivery work based on six months of research. The report has been widely reposted and viewed 3.16 million times via the original link on Weibo alone, sparking a series of related articles. Below is our translation preface by blah, blah, blah. So it sounds like a really interesting topic. I mean, you'd think this would be covered here in the United States on one of the networks. we got 24-7 news happening on three different networks. You'd think that one of them would have a chance to cover it. No. So who knew? Thanks uh, for the tip, Daniel. And I believe Alex is already working on getting a member of the collective on to discuss the writing. Again, that's Delivery Workers Trapped in the System, which you can find at schwangcn.org. Daniel also wrote to recommend that we invite Pankaj Mishra back on to This Is Hell to discuss his recent articles in the London Review of Books. Flailing States in the New York Review of Books article, Grand Illusions. Pankaj was on our show back in February of 2017. Talk about his then-just-published book, Age of Anger, A History of the Present, which is fantastic. And a conversation you can find at thisishell.com. When you search on Mishra, M-I-S-H-R-A, really was an amazing discussion. So yes, Daniel, we will be asking Pankaj to be back on the show and soon, because those sound like two amazing articles. Again, Pankaj Mishra's newest articles, London Review of Books, Flailing States, and the New York Review of Books, Grand Illusions. On last Wednesday's show, producer Richard Norwood told us about the Canopy platform, where you can find a huge archive of films for free instead of using Amazon or Netflix, and how the platform is available through the Chicago Public Library. And with the pandemic and new stay-at-home orders over the weekend, over this holiday weekend, this coming holiday weekend, what better way to spend your time than digging through a huge catalog of movies that you can watch for free via the Chicago Public Library? So yesterday, we told you about how Adam had emailed telling us that he fully endorsed Richard's endorsement of Canopy platform, and that's Canopy with a K. Then last night we get this email from Sarah. I keep hearing comments about how to watch movies and shows without using Amazon, etc. Chicago Public Library has a great collection on Hoopla. Here's a link, hoopladigital.com. 
Just use your Chicago Library card login, and you can rent the movies for three days. Then they get automatically returned, and you can search them by categories. Hope this helps. Best, Sarah in Chicago. Look at that. Two listeners in Chicago. Who knew? So apparently there's more than one platform at the Chicago Public Library's website, or through their website, or through their library card, to watch movies for free. Richard and Adam want to make certain everyone knows about Canopy with a K, and Sarah says check out HooplaDigital.com, where you can use your CPL card to get movies for free. Screw those cutesy little libraries you see popping up everywhere. Until they can provide a huge catalog of films for free, they got nothing on the CPL. Not only did Adam second Richard's suggestion of using the Canopy platform via Chicago Public Library's website to get free movies, Adam also sent a couple of guest suggestions. First, he suggests an article at Mint Press News by Dan Cohen titled How Joe Biden Plans to Make the American Empire Great Again. Behind his rhetoric, Joe Biden will seek nothing less than global supremacy, escalating a new and even more dangerous arms race that risks the destruction of humanity, what he calls decency and normalcy. Sounds like a winner. But listeners, any thoughts on Mint Press News? If you have any opinion whatsoever, just email me at chuck at com. I don't have any opinion one way or the other. Maybe I do. I just want to hear your opinion of Mint Press News. Adam also suggested Salar Mohandesi and an article he posted in September at Viewpoint Magazine, Party as Articulator. Thanks for resending this article, because Adam says he suggested this piece a couple of months ago, but he's resending it, and he thinks it might have fallen through the cracks. So, Adam, thanks for resending, because the article does not look familiar, and it makes this point about political parties. It is a specific kind of organization that is called into being to address specific problems based on specific historical conditions. Like all tools, political parties can be quite effective when used for the right job. But any attempt to make it do more than this would lead to disaster, which would have been a good analysis to share on the show prior to the election, but definitely still worth considering today and moving forward into the future as we will likely be looking to the two major parties for our salvation again in four years, and that's going to be a gigantic mistake. Finally, Jan sent an interview suggestion, writing, I would like to recommend to your potential interview list Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries, Associate Professor of History at The Ohio State University, author of Bloody Lounds, L-O-W-N-D-E-S, in case I'm not pronouncing that correctly, Civil Rights and Black Power in Alabama's Black Belt, and host of Teaching Hard History. And I also want to suggest Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, marine biologist and founder of Urban Ocean Lab, co-founder the All We Can Save Project, co-host also of How to Save a Planet. I've been listening to Dr. Jeffries for almost three years and have learned and unlearned so much about the settler colonial history of America. Dr. Johnson brings the changes currently documented in the ocean ecosystem front and center into the discussions on climate change. Her new podcast is packed full of actions to help get people mobilized. Between her and my oceanographer daughter, my head's about to explode with all the information being packed into it. Both of these individuals are very dynamic, knowledgeable, and passionate people. My horizons have been broadened immensely, and I enjoy their respective shows. Please give both of them consideration. Thanks. John. Dr. Jeffrey's podcast, John mentioned again that he also does with Dr. Johnson, How to Save a Planet. And you can learn more about Dr. Johnson by going to ayanaelizabeth.com. Ayanaelizabeth.com. All this sounds really interesting. And we're going to look into Dr. Jeffries and Dr. Johnson a little bit more and to see if they are possibly good guests on the show. It sounds like really really great potential guests on our show. You can send us your comments, criticism, both constructive and destructive alike. Thoughts, topics, or guest suggestions to chuck at thisishell.com. Message them to us via Facebook or DM them us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. And unless you tell us otherwise, we will likely share your writing on air. If you want to send us something, some physical thing in the mail, you can still do that too, despite the pandemic, because the halal... Chinese restaurant next door is getting all of our mail, thankfully, as the bars close. But you can still send us stuff by addressing whatever you want to thisishell.com. To, to, to thisishell, 
2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And thanks to Fred and Simi, because I know they sent us a couple of COVID-related comic books a couple of weeks ago. I never got around to thanking them. I thanked them once last week, but I just want to make sure that Fred and Simi, you know that I got your package. So thank you very much. And by the way, the Halal Chinese restaurant next door is called... U.S. Mania. This is not the media. This is hell coming up. The idea of utopias as frightening stymies our political imagination. Jess will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you trying really hard to not think about? What are you trying really hard to not think about? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new Grand Black This Is Hell winner hat. You can check out the new Grand Black This Is Hell winner hat and all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell, as I said, or Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us, but you have to have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show, following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth when we are announcing this week's winner. This week, Jeff and his anesthesiologist give a stern warning. Remember, no Thursday show this week, just Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So we are announcing this week's winner, the question from hell, following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth. Jeff's will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell, following our guest. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell utopian experiments and their strive for perfection have at times ended in disaster we are told and therefore they are a slippery slope always towards totalitarianism utopia is unattainable so why dream about a fantasy especially in these times where practical pragmatic pragmatic political solutions are what's needed most what's required well what if imagining utopia is politically pragmatic, especially in times of crises like the ones we find ourselves in today. Here to talk utopias, philosopher Teppo Eskalinen edited the collection of essays, The Revival of Political Imagination, Utopia as Methodology. Welcome to This Is Hell, Teppo. Thank you. Tapo is senior lecturer in development studies at Finland's University of Jyväskylä and has also worked as a lecturer in social and public policy Teppo, you write that societal utopias have so frequently been pronounced to be dead that declaring their demise has become something of a cliché. The general mentality of the 1990s led to the majority of laymen and intellectuals alike to assure this assertion as common sense. According to a widely assumed idea, utopias became obsolete as humanity ascended from the era of totalitarian ideologies to the era of liberal capitalist democracies. In this new order characterized by liberty, no human being is forced to adapt to any grand utopian vision imposed by others. Are utopias somebody else's view of perfection imposed upon all of us? Is utopia only in the eye of the beholder and nobody else? Well, this is a um, common perception of today, which we, um, which we, sh- we, sh- we should be critical about. Um, if you look at the very concept of utopia, what utopias mean, it only means um, a good place, no place. You know, utopia uh, as a concept has this dual meaning of utopos, eutopos, meaning, meaning something, a, a place which is uh, normatively speaking a good one and a place which doesn't exist. So it's kind of like an any um, imaginary reconstruction of a society that could be. Um, so sort of any, any kind of uh, vision of another kind and a better kind of society. But now since about late 1980s, 1990s, um, we've, we've been living through um, era, which we could call the era of demise of utopias. Perhaps we're seeing a revival now, but um, after the collapse of the Eastern Bloc especially, it's became something of a common sense to say that utopias in the form of visions of a whole society of a different kind uh, cannot be. They are, they are dead either because of, um, of the postmodern condition focusing only on the uh, will of the individual and, and the personal, um, say, life projects of, of the individual, or because utopias were seen as um, 
as this kind of totalitarian blueprints of society. Um, and that was particularly popularized by many uh, philosophers already in the 1950s, 1960s, very, very gorgeous kind of philosophers who argued that all utopias um, will lead to um, will, will, will lead to some kind of violence, violence and repression because someone has to force their utopia on, on others. Now, how I see utopias is a very different kind of outlook to what utopias essentially are. I believe that we need utopias as means of criticism of the society as it exists. It, it's very hard to think of any kind of uh, progressive politics or ways forward if we don't um, think in terms of what the society could be. And if we agree to, to this kind of idea of, of utopia as popularized by, by um, the, the, the bourgeois philosophers of, of the, the, the time, we, um, we end up with politics without a real vision of what could be or an idea of how to move forward. And this is a real concern. And I do believe that in order to look at politics more progressively, we need to be able to revive the, the notion of utopia, some kind of utopian practice, a uh, practice of imagining together uh, what society could be. And, um, and uh, a, a generally a spirit of political imagination. Why is neoliberal individualism, you were talking about the kind of individualism that started around the 1980s that started dismissing this concept of utopia, why is that neoliberal individualism antithetical to, uh, why is that antithetical to utopian thinking? Well, um, utopias refer to to social change in a collective sense. It means that for attaining a utopia or even imagining a, a, a utopia, we have to be able to engage in communication and uh, collective reflection on what a future society could be, could be like. And, um, and we have to retain an idea of the change of society and not only the change change of um, the life course of an individual now if we if, if we look at look at the um, sort of say general mentality in the culture of today we note that that um, the human desire for a better life is omnipresent that won't fade away but it can be directed in different ways. And that's, that's exactly what we know today. So ever more people are looking to various kinds of, um, of individual projects to improve their life, be it in form of um, gaining control of their own working life in terms of um, entrepreneurship or you know, jumping out of the rat race, so to say, to to um, gain control of one's life by, um, by downshifting. And we enter this uh, false dichotomy where we ostensibly only can choose between more consumption and, um, and individual choices for downshifting. And this kind of individualized mentality of a better life leads us away from the very notion of of utopia as social change in the collective sense. We need to have some kind of ideas of how we could change the society together and change society in the sense of society being more than a sum of its parts, right? We're, 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 we're not, not only aiming to change individual life prospects, but the institutions of society in general. Now, also, also the, the notion of neoliberalism has its, um, has, has its own connotations, which should be, should be um, understood in this context separately from, from the problems of individualism. And 
Um, I typically uh, talk talk about. Uh, I, I t- tend to speak about um, three phases of neoliberalism, which uh, with which I mean that um, uh, first, you know, some some twenty years ago, when when the discourse of neoliberalism came came to the political discussion, we were all really concerned about. Um, the fact that there's uh, there are increasing inequalities economically, uh, we're losing um, we're, we're losing control of public publicly owned companies democratically and so forth and so forth. Now, in the next stage, what we find is that these um, economic organisations become to be locked in, so that it, the, the problem is not only that we. Uh, that we experience increased economic disparities, but that we cannot change them anymore by democratic means, because there are so many, many um, politically locked-in institutions, be it in, in the form of um, of trade policy internationally or international agreements, capital movements, and so forth. And now, that the third phase of neoliberalism would be the phase when we, when Politics is locked in to the extent that we cannot anymore imagine how society could be different. So we're kind of um, locked in into the kind of social order we very easily naturalize and begin treating as if it was given to us and not subject to possible change and maneuvering our individual life projects within this frame we generally accept. And that that is what can be called um, neoliberal individualism. And clearly, the notion of utopias stand in sharp contrast to this um, the, this um, n- this general mindset. You quote a past guest on our show, Slavoj Žižek, saying, "Though it is easy to make fun of Francis Fukuyama's notion of the end of history, the majority today is Fukuyamaist." Uh, liberal democratic capitalism is accepted as the final, finally for, found formula of the best possible society. All one can do is to render it more just, tolerant, and so on. So does the end of utopian thinking or the uh, utopian imaginary limit our political agency only to reform? Is tinkering with the current system and incrementalism all we believe we can do because we gave up on the idea of utopia? Yeah. Um, I do think that uh, Zizek is pointing something really crucial in, the, in that quote. And, you know, while we can say that utopias, u- utopias generally should be revived and, uh, and we should um, engage in kind of creative political imagination, that is... Definitely a difficult thing to do, and we are um, Fukuyamist all in in the sense that it's very tempting to think of politics in terms of these uh, piecemeal changes. Um, generally, if we look at the political left, I would see, say that the left is um, you know defining its politics more in terms of adjectives and nouns today you know it it, it used to be be about um uh different kinds of institutions for grounding the society now if if you hear about listen to to left political vocabulary now it's changing now but how how it used to be to be for decades um it's it's about adding an adjective in the front of into bourgeois vocabulary. So it's like not just uh, liberal rights, but social rights, not just tra- trade, but, but uh, fair trade, not just development, but sustainable development. So, you know, the, the very language we're using politically um, sort of displays this kind of acceptance of the idea that, that all we can do is to adjust these, um, these 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 minor changes exactly to the direction of making making the system we largely accept as more fair, transparent, and and, and so forth. 
Um, as said, this is um, something I feel that is changing today. I, I do think that we're living through a kind of um, kind kind of revival in in this sense that um, ever more people are asking questions about the current society in the um, spirits of can this really be the only alternative? Because you know this this society is is going to a very dangerous and unjust directions. So, you know, it, it becomes ever more difficult. Day by day, it becomes more difficult to, to present this as the only alternative. So um, to answer your question, I do think that we are living in a turning point of a kind. Well, when it comes to that turning point, you write liberal capitalism is taken as a given and the hope invested in politics is based on an attempt to qualitatively improve this given system. It can be made more just or more tolerant, but no systemic change is possible. This condition is hardly assisted by the current ecological state of emergency, which might make mere survival seem like a hopeful scenario and a qualitatively better society beyond the horizon of possibility. So is utopia more distant during crises like the ones that we're facing right now with climate change and the pandemic, or is it more desired? Do, do crises lead us to fear utopia more and the possible imposition of a totalitarian society, or do crises lead us to increasingly demand the hope of utopia? Well, I would say it depends. Uh, when, when we talk about the ecological crisis, it's very hard to see any kind of like positive utopian vision. If the best we can imagine or like, you know, the language in which we express our hopes is the language of survival and mere survival, biological continuity of life and, you know, the continuity of human society is not really a very grand objective if we talk about political goals. So, so the um, ecological crisis tends to force us in a mode of political thinking where it's very easy to think that we cannot afford utopias. We're only in the game of politics to achieve mere survival. Now, when we talk about crises, in the sense of acute disruptions of society and social life. I do think that they, they are often, um, often instances where it's possible to quickly and even fundamentally reconsider what is valuable and how society could be organized. And I do think that, that for example, during the um, the COVID pandemic we're living through right now is teaching us a lot about the weak spots of the current society, about um, fundamental values we want to we want to adhere to, and you know making people ask difficult questions about the sustainability of the society as we know it and its um, general fairness, of course. Um, the the theme of of um, disasters has actually been theorized a lot in political theory with quite a few people arguing that that um, disasters and crises of different sorts tend to be experienced by people not not only through the uh, death and suffering and misery which inevitably accompanies disasters but but also as moments of coming together and sort of living through and experiencing another kind of society. Of course, that, that would be a micro-society, small groups organizing themselves into, into um, self, uh, self-help, uh, mutual help, help groups and, and so forth. But typically, disasters and crises tend to be moments when we see uh, a glimpse of a society that could be, um, but of, of course that um, that requires an organizational skill and kind of um, moral awareness in the mo- moments of of such crisis. 
Well, uh, let's talk about that for a moment because you mentioned this glimpse of uh, utopian glimpse. You write, the task is to understand how utopias can be used, how they affect human beings, and most importantly, to find utopian sentiments in various kinds of spaces and places. Utopian elements can be included in political initiatives, which are very much part of the everyday political discourse, such as universal basic income, for instance, or they can be found in experimental politics, contentious spaces, or even ostensibly self-evident political concepts, the methodological challenges to recognize utopian propensities, and their relevance when observing them. And I want to make sure that we don't get distracted by having just a conversation on universal basic income and its benefits or its shortcomings or whatever, but why do you see UBI, why do you see that as a utopian example, and why is it necessary to recognize UBI's utopian propensity or inclination, because we've had guests on who have pointed to, for instance, the extractive industries and how we need to be aware of when we are interacting with extractive industries, with the outcomes, the products of extractive industries, so we understand how ubiquitous they are around the world. So how do you, why is it so important to recognize the utopian propensity or inclination within UBI? To get a versatile basic income. Yeah, um, I wanted to emphasize that, that particularly. I do think that's an example amongst others on political ideas and projects and demands which have gained momentum in the present day and should be be, um, considered in terms of their utopian potential for that very reason that they they seem to have some kind of political energy behind them. Um, I I don't think that the universal basic income is necessarily um, the utopian idea of today. Others could be be more interesting and important, but there there is something radical to the idea of the universal basic income, which is that it's, um, it's an... It's it's a proposal, fundamentally a proposal, for undoing the 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 connection between labor and income, which is um, which is important in many respects. We are seeing ever less um, less of the value added in the economy paying paid as wages uh, and and there, there's there's ever more ever, ever larger share of the value added um, paid in in, um, in in profits so um, so if if we politically stick to the idea that you have to earn what you can what what, what, what you consume by by uh, labor, you're very easily producing a kind of excuse to to continue the existing um, existing capital labor relations as they are and and as they are um, uh, weakening from from the point of view of labor. So I do think that that we we need to to push new demands on on capital, and that would be. That would be one possibility. But as said, I don't want to emphasize the universal basic income too much in this context. Right. I just think it's interesting that you, we should all recognize the utopian nature of any kind of policy like UBI. We are speaking with philosopher Teppo Eskalinen, who edited the collection of essays, The Revival of Political Imagination, Utopia as methodology. You write all in all the intellectual discourse on utopian thought has been dominated by thinkers who describe utopianism as a one-way ticket to totalitarianism. Is human history littered with attempts at utopianism that became totalitarianism? Utopias that have become totalitarian, are they the fault of pursuing utopianism? Or is it something about totalitarianism? Are utopias vulnerable to co-optation by totalitarian totalitarianism more than utopias cause totalitarianism? Well, um, hierarchical societies tend to be vulnerable to totalitarianism. Um, I, I don't think that utopias are particularly vulnerable. Utopias are an expression of the 
of the um, human desire for, for better life, um, essentially. So, um, so you know, I do think that it's it's very rhetorical to to talk so much about totalitarianism in in the context of of utopias. I mean, I do understand it as a kind of um, reaction to the uh, to the uh, experiences of really existing socialism and this kind of um, distorted version of of marxism but you know that's only taking one example to the level of generalization where it is used to to counter the the the, the very practice of thinking progress essentially so um so yeah, I I I do think that that it's um, very unfair to to treat utopias in this way. Yeah, and I think it's a little bit overly simplistic. And unfortunately, I, have, I do have one more question for you about the totalitarian nature of utopia, and that is the sphere of utopia leading to totalitarianism has already become clearly overstated, as you write. The accounts of utopias discussed uh, have, for a good reason, been called dystopic liberalism or works by liberalists of fear in reference to their systematic preoccupation or, should we say, obsession with political evil. Saving humanity from totalitarianism has become an obstacle to political progress and imagination, a justification of whatever is wrong in the current society as a lesser evil by definition. Dystopic liberalism allows little role for political progress, limiting it to piecemeal social engineering. So what is more likely than to lead to totalitarianism? Pursuing utopia? or the dystopic liberalism we find ourselves in? If we fear totalitarianism, should we be more afraid of the pursuit of utopia or the existence of dystopic liberalism? Yeah, I would say say, say the, uh, the, the, the latter. I mean, of course, these are very, very uh, profound issues and very difficult to compare these kinds of notions. But um, if we if we look at the society of today, it really seems that we are moving into ever more hierarchical society. And one of the key reasons for this seems to be that there are no strong counterforces for, for, for this kind of, of development. And, and there's, there's no, real, um, no real discourse on an alternative kind of society. And, and the discourse on, on social progress is, is weak. So the developments of Western societies during the past um, 20, 30 years, I do think they show us that if we believe that the society is merely um, a technocratic frame in which piecemeal changes um, take place and where Individuals in the spirit of liberalism can can freely freely um, lead their lead their lives as they see best. This kind of society tends to gradually, slowly but surely, lose its its um, fundamental liberties it used to be so proud of, and um, as we are in the process of moving to from from a liberal society to ever more hierarchical society, we should be very seriously asking, why is this happening? And to me, the, um, one of the key answers is that, that um, we, are, we haven't been taking the, the idea of a better society seriously enough. So if, if there's, there, there's, there's a strong political force pu pushing for a kind of, kind of um, you know, more egalitarian or, or, or somehow so, so in, in some other way, better society, the existence of this kind of, kind of force also balances the, the current society to, to a better one. It seems very na naive to believe that, that uh, liberal society alone will protect even its key virtues. What happens, let's just think about this when you're responding to that question. What happens when we cannot imagine utopia 
and dismiss it outright. But we have no problem envisioning dystopia and can definitely view it as an alternative. What happens to our political imagination in that set of circumstances? Yeah, this is something really interesting. There seems to be no difficulty imagining alternative kinds of worlds as such. And if we look at popular culture today, dystopias are, are more, more consumed, if you, if you can talk of consumption, more co- consumed than ever. You know, there are even classic, classic dystopias like, uh, like uh, 1984 or books like that have suddenly become, uh, be- become bestsellers again, you know, like, um, or Brave New World or, you know, these kind of classic dystopias. So it really tells something about the um, about the, uh, the 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 present culture we, we live in. So I would say that um, that it's it's a sign of the kind of um, kind kind of futures it is currently easy for us to see. I mean, imagination also takes the takes the course of the current. Now, currently existing ideas, which are which are some somewhat um, easy easy to to think about. Um, so, so I I don't know what what really happens. I to to me it's it's more of an uh, ex, more more of um, a sign of the times. I would say you know um, we should. Pause and think. Think about why. Why is our political imagination directed towards dystopia so heavily at the expense of utopia? Uh, now, now this is not even the the only um, on, on, only um, disturbing aspect of the current political imagination. What I've been quite interested in. Also, is the is the uh, prominence of nostalgia in political speech. So we find that in contemporary politics and in, in contemporary social imagination, it seems to be a lot easier to conceive of imaginary pasts than imaginary futures. And this really does something to to politics in general. Now, if we look at um, uh, political disagreements in Western Europe, which I'm m- most familiar with, you mostly see a rise of um, of um, uh, nationalist and po- populist far right wanting, uh, like talking about an imaginary past where there was a harmonious and ethnically homogeneous nation state. And they frame their politics in terms of need to return to this imaginary past, the past that never was. And there, then we have the left saying that we should return to the imaginary past of the welfare state, which is to some extent a real past, but also a kind of idealization of what the world was like in the, in the 1970s, 1980s, for example. So we get these um, conflicting political camps with, we, who share the, share the, the very um, basic tendency of imagining pasts rather than imagining futures. And this is also something something um, very telling about the present day. So it seems to, seems to be that we only find it easy to think, to think in dystopian terms when, when we think towards the future and when, when we think in terms of what we demand political and what we want, it's more tempting to think in terms of, uh, of uh, imagining, in, in, imagining historical moments, imagining pasts. So, um, so th- this somehow sets us in, in a very interesting continuum in terms of, um, of time and progress. 
And, um, you know, there are very fundamental questions that follow in terms of, of how can we, given the, the social condition that exists, how can we, we begin imagining futures that are somehow better rather than giving in um, to this kind of dystopian nostalgic mentality? Which perfectly leads to the next question. You write that you analyze the state of utopias today as privatized hope. A given desire for a better mode of being is ubiquitous in humanity, yet it can appear in a variety of different forms. This hope has become individualized and backward-looking. Hope is invested in self-control fantasies of entrepreneurship and individual escapes and on how the collective imagination turns into a nostalgic mood. And you call for a re uh, recollectivization of hope and offer ideas for tools for this recollectivization. How can hopes be collectivized? How can we share in our hopes when our hopes are our own hopes? How can those hopes be collectivized? Well, to begin with, the hopes that uh, sustain us are not as individual as they, they perhaps initially seem. Very many people share similar kinds of... Um, of positions in society, similar kinds of problems, similar kinds of life narratives, and also similar kinds of hopes. The, the only problem is that they don't, don't find spaces to communicate these hopes. So I'd say that the, the first and, and perhaps the most important step towards this kind of recollectivization of hope would be to just find spaces and create spaces where people can communicate and share their, their, their private hopes so as to develop something more social, more collective out, out of those, um, those, those private hopes, hopes and, and dreams. Um, social scientists could have um, a role to play. I never want to overemphasize the role of, of us academics, but I do think that, that there's a lot of research agenda which could be explored in terms of, um, of um, just trying to locate the kinds of, kinds of, um, of private dreams which could have, have a more, more socially shared, shared form. Also, it's, it's crucial to look at various kinds of micro projects and small initiatives and ask how could they be brought to a more general, to a societal level. Now, we have all kinds of interesting initiatives around, around us. I've, I've been, for example, following um, the, the Time Bank in Helsinki, which is basically just a neighborhood initiative. But if you look at it, it's something very radical, like, like completely um, redefining what economic value is about and, and giving, giving economic value an interpretation based on fundamental equality and social interaction. So the, the, the question would then be, what would these um, value form, this time banking value logic, look like when brought to the level of the whole society. So I, I, I do think that on the private level and on the small level, neighborhood level, there's, um, there, there's an abundance of interesting ideas and micro practices. We just need to, to re -locate, locate them and find places where they can they can somehow upscale and turn into, in, into ideas for another kind of society instead of ideas for another kind of private life or another kind of neighborhood. 
And I just want to stress that again. Uh, I've got one last question for you, Teva. I want to stress that again, that uh, this book does discuss the practical application of utopianism, if you will. It explains how you can foster the skills, the utopian skills of political imagination. And so it's, there's a lot more constructive stuff that we're not, you know, we're just skimming the surface of this book yet again, as we do with most of our books. This is a collection of essays that Teppo has edited. We've been speaking with philosopher Teppo Escalinen, who edited the collection of essays, The Revival of Political Imagination, Utopia as Methodology. One last question for you, Teppo. And as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. You quote historian and political theorist Vincent Gohagen, writing in 2008, we can speak of a utopian disposition, a utopian impulse or mentality of which the classic utopia is but one manifestation. This impulse is grounded in the human capacity and need for fantasy, the perpetual conscious and unconscious rearranging of reality and one's place in it. It is the attempt to create an environment in which one is truly at ease. And remember, this is called the question from Hal Teppo. We do need fantasy. But why do we need fantasy in politics? Isn't, for instance, with conspiracy theories that push a belief that President Trump is actually engaged in a secret war to take down child-molesting sexual predator cannibals, aren't those the kinds of fantasies, you know, the kinds that are promoted by QAnon, a problem for political discourse? Can fantasy be a problem for political discourse, or can it, or is that the same fantasy that can breed or bring about utopian thinking? Well, of course, fantasies can be problematic, as as you, as the examples you you just mentioned. Um, but then we have to ask, what is in politics without fantasy? There's only you know, technical problem solving, fixing administration, and as we discussed before, no real political counterpower to the, the kind of um, captures of power that can take place within the existing structure. So, you know, of course, fantasies can be problematic for politics. It's just, um, um, you know, a, a risk which is completely necessary to take or, 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 or put it in, a, in another way, um, a category we have to recognize in order to to create the best of fantasies rather than the, the worst, aren't we? I mean, I, I could reformulate the question in terms of, you know, if we only stick to, to what is accepted today as rational and normal governance, aren't we surrendering the category of fantasy, which is the, the, the basis of another society, to this group of wackos you just mentioned. I mean, it's, it's, it's very serious to, to think of these, uh, these questions in these terms as well, isn't it? And, you know, for political change, we need all the kinds of tools for imagining bet better society that there are. I mean, we, we, we're talking about uh, political imagination, but no one says political imagination is easy. Political imagination is really difficult. We 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 not only need to conceive of uh, uh, another kind of administration or another kind of government, but of another kind of society, which means, you know, different kinds of everyday relations between human beings. And to conceive that, we need um, all the tools that are available for us. That is. That includes, you know, various forms of fantasy, uh, literature, culture, uh, games, whatever. So, so um, you know, you you have to be imagine in order not to live in the eternal present and see the eternal present becoming a dystopic future. Teppo, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show today. This has been a fantastic conversation, really enlightening, and I learned a lot from it. And also from your book, The Revival of Political Imagination, Utopia's Methodology. And again, I just want to stress to everybody that this is a collection of essays that Teppo has put together. He has a, an essay of his own in this collection, as well as writing the introduction. 
check out his book again, The Revival of Political Imagination, Utopia as Methodology, because something that we've been repeating on our show for 20, 25 years now is the limitations of political imagination imposed on us by neoliberalism. So I'm so glad that somebody's written a book about it. Again, philosopher Teppo Eskalinen edited the collection of essays, The Revival of Political Imagination, Utopia as Methodology. Thank you so much for being on our show, Teppo. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. This week's question from hell is, what are you trying really hard to not think about? What are you trying really hard to not think about? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black This Is Hell winter hat. You can check out the new gray on black This Is Hell winter hat and all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer in by the end of tomorrow. Tomorrow's Wednesday's show, as we will be revealing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth this week, Jeff and his anesthesiologist give a stern warning. Just how are listeners answering this week's question from hell, which is, what are you trying really hard to not think about? What are you trying really hard to not think about? Jess, any answers? What are you trying really hard to not think about this week? Listeners are answering. We're starting with Aaron D. <coughs> saying, How mesh Wi Fi is stimulating my pineal gland to doubt the efficacy of a Biden administration. <laughs> Almost made me cough up my coffee. <laughs> Ronaldo M. says, The microscopic eight legged mites that live on all our faces, no matter how much we wash, harmless supposedly, but disgusting. They lay their eggs in our pores. Nasty. <laughs> Andrea J. Says the elephants in the room and the skeletons in the closet. <laughs> I think that's the third elephants in the room response we've gotten so far, but at least they threw the skeletons in the closet in there, too. Joshua J says, My big fat ego. Eric T says, The fact that some people can't handle a non gendered character in the Animaniacs. <laughs> Is that really an issue? Is Animaniacs back, by the way? Is that what's going on? Because. Yeah, I don't understand. I. I was Google? I have no idea. I, I don't know. I have no idea what's going on. I, I, Animaniacs was just a show like in the 90s. I didn't know that it came back and that there's some big issue about it. I have no idea what's yeah, going no, on. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm not aware either. Uh, do, should should we know about this, by the way, Jess? Should we be wasting <laughs> our time on an Animaniacs controversy? Well, well it made me Google it. <laughs> yeah, go. <laughs> um, so what are you trying really hard to not think about? Um, Aaron B. says the perfect answer to this question. Caitlin C. says... <laughs> Um, impending doom Simon S the time that I picked up and dropped my sister-in-law's Jack Russell dog into her swimming pool after it had bitten my kid the week before it died in a hit and run a few weeks later I had an alibi (laughs) wow (laughs) Um, Scott A says I must not fear fear is the mind killer fear is the little death that brings total obliteration I will face my fear I will permit it to pass over me and through me and when it is gone and passed I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Wow. That's pretty pretty freaking deep. Yeah, it's intense. Um, What are you trying really hard not to think about? Mason W. says, Every embarrassing thing I've ever done in my life. I should really stop playing these in my head each night. (laughs) I do that all the time. It's really awful. (laughs) Cody K. says, The fact that I have an ever-growing library of books and video games that I may never find the time to enjoy. It's called a retirement plan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Don't worry about it. Uh, Kim G um, says that bothersome tooth. And that <laughs> is it for today. We'll have even more of your answers to this week's question from hell again. What are you trying really hard to not think about? On tomorrow's show, and again, we will be announcing the winner at the end of Wednesday's tomorrow's show following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. You can see our winter hat that we are giving away as the prize for this week's Question from Hell and our entire line of merchandise that comes in black, gray on black, and has been very popular right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Thanks to Peter C. and Toasty Animation for showing your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support yesterday. We truly appreciate it. So thank you, Peter and Toasty. Jess, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com. Tomorrow, we've got Dave Buchan reporting from San Juan um, and Jeff Dorchin with the Moment of Truth. Uh, Our man in San Juan, yes, 
Dave Buchan is back tomorrow. He'll be reporting to us live from Puerto Rico on this month's elections there that brought the third party in Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rican Independence Party, to power, which is a huge shift to the left and a denunciation of the two-party system that has dominated the island for close to a century. And as we've been saying during this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff and his anesthesiologist give a stern warning. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. And yes, we are still looking for volunteer board operators who can show up regularly one, two, three, or more times a month or even a week for our 10 a.m. daily show here at our studios above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. We are very flexible and we can only, and if you can only do it a couple times a week or a month or whatever. We can work around your schedule. We are incredibly flexible. If you are interested in this unique opportunity, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. The position does come with a very modest stipend, so keep that in mind as well. This is also your chance to have access to a professional studio for your own projects. If you have your own podcast idea or sound projects of any kind, you can get access to our studio. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. We're also looking for volunteers who can do some remote work, which we will be describing in depth soon on the show. And last night we got a couple emails inquiring about working on the show. John writes, I heard a general call for help this morning from This Is Hell, and I was wondering if I may volunteer in any way. I'm a teacher, so I'm on the computer all day anyways. Jesus, that's what teaching has been turned into during the pandemic. And Greg wrote saying, I'm uh, emailing after listening to Friday's Patreon podcast. First, I'm super happy Alex feels better about the sustainability of his work with the show now that you have enough Patreon subscribers, but never too many. As a fellow working from home parent in a pandemic, I'm glad I can help the little I do via Patreon. The new board operators are doing great, and it's nice to hear new voices, but I do miss Alex's sense of humor. Second, as a remote worker, I'm also very adept at getting my work orders from a faceless email and returning completed deliverables in a not always timely manner. So hit me up with your list when you have it of stuff that you need to have done remotely. Be well, be safe, Greg. So, John and Greg, we will be contacting you both and everyone who has reached out to show their support for This Is Hell by volunteering to contribute in whatever way they can. Again, if you are interested in becoming part of the staff here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest. Thanks to Jess Lipka for producing today's show. Thanks to Teppo Eskelenin, author of the revival of political imagination, Utopia as Methodology. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>